This is an ABC podcast. Nick Cave is here today. Nick Cave grew up in Wangaratta, Victoria. He came to Melbourne and formed a band called The Boys Next Door, which later became The Birthday Party, one of the wildest, most chaotic and most influential bands in the history of rock music. Just as The Birthday Party had become internationally notorious, they broke up and Nick Cave formed a new group, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, which, through various lineup changes, are still a thing today, after four decades. Nick Cave's songs are inflamed with emotionally intense, dark and vivid imagery, drawing on his literary influences, particularly the stories of the New Testament. On a gathering storm comes a tall, handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand. But over the past four decades, the songs he's created with his collaborators have evolved. They've become more personal as Nick has gotten older and accumulated the wounds of experience from addiction, love and disaster. And in 2015, he and his wife Susie bore an unthinkable loss when their 15-year-old son, Arthur, fell off a cliff in the English seaside town of Brighton, where they live, and later died of his injuries. More recently, Nick has suffered the loss of another son, Jethro. In 2020, Nick Cave and his collaborator Warren Ellis produced an astonishing album called Ghost Teen, which he created, he said, to make a place where his son might find some rest. At this time, Nick, who'd largely shunned interviews, surprisingly opened himself to direct questions from his fans, or to anyone else for that matter, through an Ask Me Anything website he established called The Red Hand Files. And now there's a book called Faith, Hope and Carnage, a record of his conversations about such things with his friend, Sean O'Hagan. Hello, Nick. Welcome. Hello. It's lovely to be here. For a long while, I know you shunned doing interviews. The songs were enough for you. Tell me how answering questions from complete strangers and fans on your website, The Red Hand Files, changed your mind on that. Well, I don't mean to be... uh rude but it was the depth of the questions um (laughs) you thought you could get a quality interview from a stranger (laughs) um it really was the red hand file started off as a kind of ask me anything type of affair about four years ago and the questions initially were basic questions you might ask a person in the music industry but very quickly the questions became something else altogether and people started to write in about all sorts of things, and that really pushed the dimensions of the whole enterprise uh, out into areas that I had no particular expertise to talk about, yet were intriguing subjects to engage with. And so it, it sort of blew out into something entirely different and unexpected. The questions were so personal and so moving that it became something of a uh, I don't know, a duty to these people to try my best to answer the questions as thoughtfully as I could, you know. So it's really turned into something that's had a huge effect on my own life. And that's very different than sitting down and doing, let's say, a music interview 
which I've done, you know, hundreds in my career. And the form of the interview itself, uh, usually for editorial press, has a kind of pattern around it where you can't really move in a conversation very well. So the Red Hand Files gave me the opportunity to talk about things in a different way. It's kind of a traditional belligerence in a music industry interview. And uh, in the book you mention an interview you did <laughs> some 30 years ago when he <laughs> said the journalist who met you told you he'd been advised by his editor, don't get him started on God. <laughs> uh, Nick, I'd like to start there, actually. <laughs> I want you to tell me what Christianity was to you growing up. Was it a harsh thing or a, or a gentle, loving thing? It, well, it was very much a, a gentle thing. It was definitely a pretty anodyne decaf affair and I, and I was in the church choir so you know I was doing church three times a week I guess you know and I had no particular interest in it from a re- religious point of view but I did find the language really affecting uh, and the stories extremely interesting to, to someone like myself who I think has and has always had a like a religious temperament shall we say. You you have clearly a really profound sense of the mystery of the world and of some kind of lovely, ineffable world that exists beyond the veil of the diurnal sort of day-to-day world. Do you think you had that or Christianity gave that to you? I I think, oh, well, that is a good question, yeah. I, I think, as far as I can see, people have spiritual temperaments or they don't. I think that's something that, that, that it may just be in your bones and in your blood. It, it was certainly from a very early age something that just interested me where it didn't interest anybody else of my age. Um, I was genuinely, was gen, genuinely seduced by the stories from the Bible, especially the New Testament stories, the figure of Christ. It had a profound impact on me. And it really taught me something about the power of storytelling in general. And I think that may be responsible for the fact that I, that I did at least write extremely, or, or I do write very much narrative types of songs. I think this came out of a kind of understanding of, or a, a love of biblical text. But what came first, I, I really don't know. I love reading the works of old medieval scholars and scientists and one of the things they have in common, whether they're Christian, Muslim or Jewish in Europe, is they have this lovely sense that the world is this exquisite and incredibly intricate puzzle created by God and God has also given humans reason to be able to nut it out, to see this world of invisible correspondences. It's such a beautiful idea, of a lovely way of seeing the world. Do you, do you see the world in that kind of poetic way? Um. That's a very nice way to put that, but I struggle. I, I struggle with the notion of, of God. I always have, although my scepticism, it's, it tends to fall away easier these days. I get a sense you're bored with your scepticism. Well, I find it gets in the way of the sort of transcendent experience. So it's not so much whether I uh, have a commitment to the idea of God rather than what that commitment can do for me, or it's the act of belief, or it's the action of, of reaching towards what you're calling the ineffable that I find the religious experience to me. It's not to do with arriving in that place, if that makes any sense. It's striving for it? It's striving for it. 
where I find the religious experience exists. And when you use a word like God, do you do you have a strong idea of what that is? Is it the kind of a vague apprehension of a larger larger mystery, or is it more specific than that? A kind of a guiding, creating mind. Um. Hmm. You, you know, I, I I tend to see the, the idea of God as being the goodness in ourselves, but I also feel that that it is something that echoes outwards too. That it is that that it is something that exists beyond us, um, and there's a kind of dynamic that exists between the God within and the God without. How that idea manifests, or what God actually is, is something that I I have no understanding of whatsoever. It's hard to talk about these things directly. I know, and sometimes you know, poetry works really well in these matters. There's a really lovely poem I I, I really love by a poet called Yaroslav Seifert, and it it goes along these lines. He wrote, Keyholes are glittering in the sky, and when a cloud covers them, somebody's hand is on the doorknob, and the eye which had hoped to see a mystery gazes in vain. I wouldn't mind opening that door, except I don't know which, and then I fear what I might find. Do you get a sense you know what he means by that? Well, to a degree in the sense that he's talking about uh, something obscuring or something in the way of uh, an understanding of what God is. And I feel that very much. So the, the, the evidence of God is something that is much more to do with um, a kind of whispered intuition about things. Mm. It's softly spoken, shall we say, and it's not the, the kind of conversion that you often hear about for me. So I just think that if we disregard these intimations, that we do that at our peril to some degree, that we need to move towards these ineffable things um, for our own salvation. You've spoken about how Christian art has often electrified you yeah. from a child right up to the present day. Yeah. You know, Orthodox Christian art presents Jesus as a kind of pristine, resplendent, emperor in heaven with all the angels and saints assembled around him. But Catholic depictions show him quite differently typically. He's, he's a pauper dying in agony on a cross. Yeah. Do you identify with one more than the other or do you think you need both ideas? Yeah, I mean, it staggers me that this man who, who was essentially the, the Catholic embodiment of the suffering human being reverberates through the history of the world and affects us to this day, whether we're secular or religious. This, to me, is an incredibly powerful idea and makes me feel that to go into a church, for example, is something. It's not nothing. It's something to sit there and and be surrounded by this sort of architectural faith. It's a thing, and it, it is born from wretched, crucified humanity. And that, to me, I, I, I respond to that very closely, that idea. And yet, despite your reverence for that idea, you've always had these great, roaring, pagan voices in your songs, going right back to the birthday party. And even in your new album, Carnage, that you've made with Warren Ellis, there's the song White Elephant. There's a great, roaring, pagan voice in that too, isn't there? Well, yeah, I think there is, but it's not that I feel I need to sort of balance things out a bit. I'm pretty much 
at the mercy of the creative impulse itself of 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 yeah of which I have no control over so I just kind of get what I get and sometimes it's violent and sometimes it's very beautiful but I'm not I don't write enough I don't write enough songs to be able to kind of pick and choose to be honest so a song like white elephant will emerge and it's a violent song but it's still the same thing to me it's still the same creative impulse which is on some level a kind of um the creative impulse itself is a kind of tussling with the idea of what god is i would say is it more fun to give voice to those pagan voices yeah <laughs> <laughs> They say all sorts of terrible things, well, don't well, they? <laughs> <laughs> to play that song, uh, White Elephant, on stage, it takes you somewhere too. You don't have to make holy music, shall we say, <laughs> for a transcendent experience. You can get those experiences in all sorts of places. Are you speaking of the present moment when you've written that song because there's a voice in there that says, I'm going to shoot you, you know, with an elephant gun, I'm going to do it just for fun. Do you see something of the present moment, the politics of the present moment in, uh, has, has given voice to that line? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for, to that whole song. That was written in lockdown and the Black Lives Matter thing was kicking off and statues were being torn down. And this particular song, I guess, is sung from the point of view of an extremely pissed-off statue lying on its side and, and, and what, what that thing becomes. It's a comic song to, mm. to some degree. It's an absurd, surrealistic song. At the time there was, I remember looking at a statue of the Little Mermaid in, in uh, Copenhagen which is a statue I particularly like, and and it had uh, racist fish written. <laughs> <laughs> Someone had written racist really? fish on it, and I'm like, well, <laughs> hang on a second here. <laughs> um, and so my my, <laughs> I guess white elephant is that is right. that racist fish uh, coming up for coming up and uh, with all its guns out. <laughs> What was that image? It sounds like you you get the image before you get the, you, you get these I don't know what set of images before you even get the song. Is that right? Yeah, I, I guess I, I guess I get the pictures first before the words to some degree, or, or, or I certainly have in the last couple of records. Ghosting very much so. Um, there was a series of images uh, that I had way before I started writing the song. Just things that I seemed to think about and liked the way that they felt in my mind. What were those images? Well, I'd had this sort of idea in my mind of a man standing on a on a beach and the place was on fire and the animals were running around screaming and creatures were rising out of the sea and it was this nightmarish, surrealistic view and that children were spiralling up to the sun. That was a kind of reoccurring motive that actually occurs throughout Ghosting. And so a lot of those pictures come up, I write them down in books. It, it's sounding mystical, but it's, it's not supposed to be sounding mystical. It's, it's actually very much to do with the nuts and bolts of songwriting to, to collect some resonant images and put them together and make a record out of it. 
I think one of the most boring and most interesting questions you can always ask an artist is where do you get your ideas from? And that's the most banal and the most important question at the same time. But P.L. Travers, Pamela Travers, who wrote Mary Poppins, she always said that Mary Poppins came to her from outside of her and she thought she was just some kind of a radio picking up something in the zeitgeist. And Mm. whenever I put that to novelists, by and large, they don't like the idea at all. They go, oh, no, 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 no. But songwriters, they go, oh, yeah. Oh, of course, straight away. That's like it's it's a really obvious thought to them. What do you what do you think about that, Nick? Yeah, I, I think the reason why writers might balk at that idea is that of the amount of effort it takes to write a book, and that somehow negates the the work of sitting down and working day after day after day. It's not like they're just being given stuff. It's hard work, and I think that songwriting for many songwriters isn't hard work. It's kind of easy. They sit down and pick up a guitar and strum away and a kind of song comes about. But for me, I, I rather balk at the idea too because I work at it every day. I sit down and a lot of the times nothing comes and it's very much about just pushing through and finding these tiny little ideas and grabbing one one tiny little line and putting it against some other tiny meaningless little line and suddenly those two lines mean something and they start to reverberate together or shimmer in some way and 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 you start to find that a song emerges this is a difficult process for me and it takes a really long time um so i'm not if if i was being given songs i i just wish they were uh, uh, given more easily and more of them. Um, But for me, it really feels like having to sort of go through a lot of agony to write a song. It's the difficult stuff. The the other part of my job, playing the concerts and making the records, going to the studio, this is all, you know, this is joyful stuff, but the actual writing of the songs is, is really difficult. I don't have those blinding epiphanies where a song falls from the sky and, you know, drops into my lap. It's very rare. You know, ahead of this conversation, I went back and listened through the old record collection, you know, from Prayers on Fire through to Tend to Pray and Let Love In and more recently to Ghostine and Carnage, your most recent album. And the thing that strikes me all the way through them, Nick, is your how often you've reinvented the way you make music again and again and again. There's this difficulty, this kind of awkwardness you're talking about at the very start, the painful start. Is that part of this need to come up with something that sounds new all the time? Well, you don't want to be doing stuff you've already done before. Well, your fans probably do, though, don't they? That's the thing. Yeah, I mean, I feel it's a big problem and you know, devastating to someone's career to allow the fans to dictate what you should or should not do. I say that with all the love and respect in the world, but you see it happen and eventually I think the fans become resentful to the people that they love for not taking them anywhere. You want to take the audience somewhere. And so I feel it's necessary and it's my duty actually to move forward with what I do musically for good or for bad. And in the writing process, it's funny, in the writing process, I sit down and and start, if if I'm going to make a new record, I I have a date where I I begin the writing of the new record and I sit down at my desk and I start to write the new record. And very often it's easy. It's suddenly easy and, like, all this stuff's coming 
And I'm like, wow, this is going to be easy, this record. Um, but but the, these are deceiving ideas, I call them, or, or residual ideas in that they are just the kind of uh, the sort of bathwater of the last <laughs> album, you know, that's just sort of hanging around in the pipes. The dirty bathwater, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, I think a lot of musicians are basically dealing in dirty bathwater. <laughs> <laughs> Now that you've got that image in your head, I, it won't leave you, I'm sure, either, Nick. That's, that's a marvellous thing. The, the biggest change I think I can see in your songs is that you've gone from these kind of real story, narrative songs, really heavy narrative songs. Your, your songs now seem, that you're doing with Warren now, seem more like bonfires. It's like you're sort of heaping up fuel and you sort of set fire to it and you stoke it and it, they, they're not as narrative but they seem to build up and have this kind of in- intensity and, and there's all these ashes rising up. What, what do you think of my, my, my ham-fisted metaphor here, Nick? Well, that's a nice metaphor. I like it. I wouldn't use it necessarily to describe what I do but um, hmm, I'm just trying to, to... My question, I suppose, is are you, are you looking to avoid narrative now? Yeah, I mean, look... When I was writing songs early on, early on in my career, I just wasn't uh, kind of a fully formed person, I would say. And in that respect, it was easier for me to write stories about things because I was good at that. I could really write a great uh, narrative song. I, I just had a knack for it. And that may be, as as I was trying to say before, something to do with a kind of a fascination with the concept of storytelling that goes back to reading the Bible a lot as a child or, or knowing those, not reading the Bible a lot, knowing those stories as a child. But that, that's another thing. But I, I think that they were a talent that I had that sort of obscured the fact that I probably didn't have much to say about anything on some level other than write stories. And at some point, life started to have its devastating effect on me. And that was a series of, you know, there was the boatman's call. I think that was probably the the place where the whole, that whole thing of, of writing stories broke apart and I started to write things that were much more personal and that I felt I had, I felt that I, I, I had something to say about things. And so the boatman's call deals in much more personal lyrics of, I started to use the word I more. And I think that these days and, and progressively from that point, it's impossible to untangle my life and what's happened in my life from the songs themselves. You know, there's, there's this, this argument about that goes on periodically when someone does a disgraceful thing and uh, everyone wonders whether they should be listening to that person's record or music anymore, in that the artist is separated from... We should be able to separate the artist from the art. And I've often used that in defence of of listening to music made by kind of faulty people. I've made that argument myself, but I don't really believe it to be true these days. I think we are completely, mostly, if we're doing good stuff completely implicated within our songwriting, but that the songwriting itself is the redemption. It's the good that we can do from from our faulty, messed up selves. And for that reason, we should be 
cautious about what we do with people's music. Does that make any sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're old enough to have some terrible wounds and the worst of those wounds, of course, it seems, is the death of your son, Arthur, and your record, beautiful record, Ghostine. Well, well, well yes, d- death of both of my sons. Yeah, Jethro being the other one. Yeah. I got talking to a friend of mine about grief and about he told me about after his mother's death. He felt uh, like the he felt this awful vertigo, like the whole floor of his life had fallen away. And he felt like that for two years. And he said, and after two years, she was with me. And he still feels like that. Does that resonate with your own experience of grief, Nick? Yeah, I, I, I would say that that is, you, you know, I have the, the red hand files and that is probably the most common letter that comes in to me is that someone has died but they can feel that person all around. And whether that's the case or not is another thing entirely, but... What upsets me, I guess, is that that often this kind of language is looked at with huge suspicion by by people, um, that these intimations of the divine and and the the presence of the dead, shall we say, uh, are generally looked at as being um, you know intellectually weak and uh, magical thinking. And this sort of thing, and and I find that for people who are grieving, it's this stuff that somehow can lead them out of the darkness, and that we need to understand that. And and maybe that's what maybe that's what religion is. Although I think religion is much more than that, but that is certainly part of it. That it that it is some way helps people back from the brink. Um, and, and so I find people who talk in that way rather than, rather than I don't look on those words with suspicion but with a, with a great amount of empathy. This is... Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Nick, you were talking before about how after a catastrophic death, like the one suffered in your own family, how people find solace sometimes in their sense of the divine and the presence of the dead, and also how that this is increasingly looked upon with suspicion in modern life. But this scorn for thinking about these things in metaphysical ways, this is a really new thing in the world, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah, very, very quickly that happened. You know, I mean, uh, within our lifetime, we went from religious to, to, to being essentially religious as a society to secular and on some level, that's a good thing. And on some level, we lost a lot in that process too, I think. Yeah, what kind of babies have been thrown out with that bathwater? We're back at bathwater again. There. <laughs> what sort of babies do you think have been thrown out there with that? 
Um, I, I don't think that the secular world really has... I, I'll tell you something. I, I went to a service in my local church a couple of weeks ago, which was the commemoration of All Souls, All Souls Day. And in that service, they read out the names of the dead that have died uh, through that year, that people within the congregation have put, put the names of the people that they want to be read out. And this service starts with a kind of a kind of admitting of our sins about things, and then it moves on through the list of these names. And the reading of these names takes maybe half an hour, and it's unbelievably moving. And by the end of it, there's redemptive music, and you walk out, and you and and you feel something. You are given the opportunity to feel in extreme and safe proximity to the dead uh, and, and to have a time to meditate on those that you've missed and that you've loved in a formal setting. And this is an extraordinarily powerful thing. Whether you believe in, in God or not, it is a, a place that, where this can happen, which I don't think, as far as I'm concerned, that the secular world offers in a communal way. And, and maybe that's what church going to church is essentially about. It's about death and some sort of rising up from that. But it's incredibly moving and, and so I, I think that's some of the stuff that's been thrown out of the sort of secular experience. I've listened to Ghost Teen several times now as an album and it, it sort of hit me like a requiem. Yeah. And a requiem is, isn't just to comfort the survivors and the living Classic Requiem was written to comfort the dead person too. Was Ghosting like that for Arthur? Yeah. Yeah, it was. I'm, I've never thought of it in that way, but, yes, that's what was going on, I think. I, I, it was a very strange record to make. We were both, Warren and I, were in very strange places in our lives and and we just fell into the making of this record and, and it, it, there's something about that particular record and about the way that it was made, the intensity of the experience and the motives behind the making of the music that, that are different than other records that we make. But at that time in my life when I was trying to make that, when, when I was deeply grieving about things, about the, the loss of my son, I... Hmm, um, you know, I, I felt that in some way I could ask... Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I felt that it was in some way for him and a way of making things better for him. It's difficult to uh, to talk about it. It's difficult to, to describe accurately, but there was some other purpose to that record that was directed towards him and and his spiritual condition, uh, if that makes any sense. I'm stepping really gingerly here because this is such a, a fragile idea and such a powerful one at the same time. You, you, wrote, you say in the book that the songs on Ghosting are an imagined place where Arthur can find some rest. Do you mean your thoughts of him or, or Arthur himself? Uh, I mean Arthur himself, yeah. What state do you imagine him to be in? Well... Uh, I don't know, but I feel 
Well, this is a difficult thing to talk about, but I, I feel um, concerned at times about his condition. And that has something to do with the amount that that we suffer because of what happened. And, I, you know, I feel like somehow he, he, he may be a kind of spiritual reflection of the condition of his parents and those around him. It's a very difficult thing to put into words and it sounds weak when I when I say it but it, it sounds like a weak idea but it was a very powerful motiv- motivating force around the making of ghosting does that feeling of grief and that loss does it alter the way you feel about the living the people who are still close to yeah. you does it alienate you from them or bring you closer it brings you very close to people in fact it obliterates you it's a devastating and obliterating force. And so you have to put yourself back together in some way. And the way of doing that or, or what you become is quite extraordinary on some level because you it's like you've been turned inside out. All the, I'm, I'm talking for me personally now, but all the kind of self-regard I had um, before he died of my work and the sort of narcissism of my life was put in the grinder and and I just became a different person. Afterwards, I just was turned around to look at the world and what I saw in the world was, was people that were also suffering and that there was a, an urgency about my relation towards them that we needed to, or that I needed, and Susie too felt the same thing, that we needed to do what we could to help the world in some kind of way. And and it really has something to do with a, a, an absolute feeling of the world being in kind of a perilous state or that we as individuals are in a perilous state. And Susie, it feels it almost pathologically, I would say, that people are going to die and soon all the time. You know, this is a, a kind of state of being on some level. And, and this is also an in, incredible energy for her to do her work and to do what she does to help others in similar situations and, and so forth. It is an incredible motivating force. Were there things that happened to you or you could do that gave you even just a flickering flickering moments of relief, even just for like the, the tiniest moments in, 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 those, in that place, Nick? Um, not initially, no. There was nothing good about it and there was nothing positive uh, that I could say about it. And, and in fact, I'm often talking, especially in the Red Hand Files, from the other side of the abyss, shall we say. Uh, this is what Sean O'Hagan brought up in the book because he said when you talk about grief, you're always talking about it from a point that you've somehow made it through uh, and that your your message is that it's possible to make it through this thing. You know, things can get better and things do get better and that we get better. But he, he said that, that I tended not to talk about what it was actually like at the time. And as a consequence of that, when I write about those things in Red Hand Files, I, of, I often get letters from people whose children have just died who are furious about me saying that life can be better or that we can 
grow to be better people or that we can be happy because they're in that place and that place there is there is no happy ending or it certainly feels that way but there are things that happen i think tiny um minuscule gestures from the world towards us that can gently lead us out of that place if we remain alert to that the the problem is that a, along with grief can come a kind of hardening of ourselves, a constricted, inward-looking hardening of ourselves around the absence of that person. And this is a terrible place to be and needs to be. Uh, we need to do what we can not to, to find ourselves in that position. As part of that, you need to acknowledge some rage. Well, if that's how you feel, the rage, if you, if you feel rage, you need to be able to redirect that energy towards something other than just allowing it to eat you away from inside. For some reason, I found myself talking a lot about hope on this program in recent years, and uh, it's a really corny word most of the time, but the, the definition of hope I keep returning to is by Václav Havel, who spent time years in prison as a dissident and never expected to become the president of his nation, which he eventually did. Uh, he said that hope is not the same thing as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success. But he says hope is rather an ability to work for something because it is good, not because it stands a chance to succeed. It is not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, mm. but a certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. What do you think of that? Well, I think that hope is optimism with a broken heart, something like that. And I do know what he means by that it's there's a kind of simple optimism that I don't re I, I'm not that way inclined personally I don't have that kind of basic optimism towards things I think it's difficult to look at the world and be particularly optimistic about things at the moment however I, I have hope I have hope on a larger grander kind of cosmic level that the world will eventually be okay I, I feel that very strongly. I found interviewing people over the years, those who have really suffered terribly, if they can make it out to some other place from under that, they tend to emerge with this kind of, I don't know, it's like everything, there's a clarity in them and, the, and so much of the kind of crap we build up around our personas is sort of shorn away and there's this kind of a beauty and awe and a, a clarity to the voice. Well, th that's, I, I guess, what I, the, the part I missed out on that, that answer is that that hope is not easily uh, won or earned, that feeling of hopefulness towards things. And so it's that sort of reach beyond our suffering towards something beyond ourselves that is, I guess, what we're talking about when we're talking about hope that it has to do with happiness too, the, the concept of being happiness or the courage at least to be happy about things or a kind of defiant happiness. Uh, I think that that is something that I've found as well, that I am largely happy, but it's a hard-won happiness, I would say. And, you know, I have a kind of life these days that, that is essentially good and and I look at people and I see them as good and 
I don't see the world in the same way as maybe I, I, I used to see it as a young person, that my contempt for the world on some level was, was a kind of default and unthoughtful... Um, defensive posture? Yeah, def- defensive posture. That, that's good. You know, and, and I don't feel that anymore. I feel much more regard for people and the good in people, the good of people, and that the world is not animated by evil as we're constantly, you know, told that it's animated by love. I just feel that very strongly, and maybe that has something to do with the, the hope question. The book you've made with Shauna Hagen, it, it struck me, having finished it, that it felt to me like an act of kindness to a stranger. An act of kindness to, to Sean. No, no, to, <laughs> to, 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 no, more, no, more narcissistically to me, Nick. I think oh, okay. to me as a stranger, as a reader, as a, as, to your readers who, who may know something of what you've gone through and may not, and, and there's something very instructive and beautiful about it. Uh, it's it, an act of kindness from you to strangers, um, which are your readers and your fans. Can you tell me about some of the small acts of kindness, the kindnesses you've received from strangers, from people in the world, from audiences? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in a position where what happened to me happened publicly. You know, it's in all the newspapers. It doesn't normally happen to people when a loved one dies that it gets in the papers. Um, but it, that happened to me and everyone knew about it and I would walk outside and everybody knew about it and... This feels like a curse of some sort and that you just want to be able to grieve privately. But on some level, it saved my life that it was public because it forced me to address these issues publicly. Even just the amount of physical letters I got to my house that were, that were just had Nick Cave Brighton written on them because they know me in Brighton. They just arrived. They, they were letters not just of condolences and, and sympathy, but letters saying, look, this happened to me. And people started writing in on the red hand files, this happened to me as well. And these were these momentary flashes of light that you could gravitate towards. So they really had a huge impact on me. And I guess that's what the red, what is behind the Red Hand Files, even though the Red Hand Files isn't all about grief, it's about all sorts of things. But it, it, it was that, that I was able to write back and say, well, this happened to me. And this has a huge effect because you, you realise fundamentally that you're, you're not alone in this thing, that everybody essentially goes through what I've gone through and what everybody else is going through. At some point, or that so many other people are going through at some point in their lives, and if, it, if this hasn't happened to you, it will happen to you. And that people could explain that to me, particularly my, my fans and, I don't know, just ordinary people writing in, had a huge healing effect that really saved me. And I say that because I know that there are a lot of other people out there that you know, they don't have anybody and, and, and all they have is the memory of their child and their grief. And for a mother, it can be extremely difficult. The complications around that for a mother are extraordinary. Uh, the attachment to the child, the primal attachment to that child is a, a special kind of hell. And very often these people are alone with that 
because it's just too sad for people to deal with. You know, I talk about a kind of deficit of language around grief and that sort of stuff, but actually it, it, it's just too difficult sometimes for people to to be able to engage with people who are grieving on that level. And so they're alone with this. And and when people write into the Red Hand Files, it's very much from people like this that are just aren't able to talk to anybody about it or that, you know, that people don't want to listen to it anymore or, that, you know, it's there's a sort of sell-by date or something that they're, they're allowed to grieve. And so uh, the Red Hand Files to me are really extraordinary incredibly moving place. You did a series of events in conversation events which kicked off in your hometown of Wangaratta in Victoria from you know, bushranger country where you where you grew up as a boy. Yeah. I wonder what it was like for you to expose yourself on stage in a, in a live Ask Me Anything format and whether you felt it was a, there was some joy in that or, or it was just a hard duty you felt. No, it, it, I don't know what they were like, those events, and I, I did them... Early on, and I don't—I really don't know what I was doing. I think I was kind of half mad when I was doing that stuff, you know. But I don't know. I hear—I hear people like them. Uh, I enjoyed that one in Wangaratta because I got a an opportunity to apologise to all the people from Wangaratta for all the terrible things I've said about their <laughs> town over the years. <laughs> you say in the book you reflect on your childhood in Wangaratta really fondly now. Well, well, I well I actually do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just look back on my childhood in, in, in Wangaratta and and it was just kind of perfect in the sense that, well, uh, well, I had p- parents that loved me and that's pretty good. If you can have that, that's a good start. But I also had parents that just booted me out the door of the house in the morning and told me to come back f- for tea time and I could just do whatever I like. I had a completely unsupervised childhood. I mean, this is just so great for a kid. That's another, I guess that's something else we've lost the capacity to do. Anyway, just to say I love Wangaratta. It's a great place and I'm looking forward to... <laughs> going back. Going back there. And li- living there, perhaps, Nick, living there. One yeah, I'm buying a, <laughs> one of those bungalow places. Yeah. Old Queenslander and going to sit on my porch. Just just finally, I want you to address a media controversy. There was a headline at the time in the local Wangaratta newspaper, and I'm quoting here, former choir boy Nick Cave to fund repairs of partially decapitated baby Jesus. <laughs> Would you care to explain that headline, sir, please? <laughs> Well, when I was there, I, I went and uh, I went to the church, uh, the the cathedral, Wang- the Wangaratta Cathedral, and um, because mm-hmm. because I used to sing there, and I was interested to see if it had changed or what it was like. I just wanted to go back there. We were, we had a day off, and uh, and I was taken inside by the dean, I think, and he took me around, and I guess it was near Christmas, and there was a nativity, and the Jesus was there, but someone had snapped its head off. Um, <laughs> and the dean was a little bit embarrassed and said, yeah, we had some vandals in or something like that, and they broke Jesus's... Bloody kids, Bloody eh? kids. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And so I wrote a letter saying, look, I'm very happy to pay for the damages to the Jesus if you could just <laughs> put his head back on. Um, but they didn't want me to do that, and um, I don't, I'm not quite sure, but they said they'd take the money anyway... But I don't know, they were going to get a new Jesus or something like that. I don't know. (laughs)
I know it I never know. happened. Anyway, but to, quite, to earn that headline, it was, it was worth. It was worth the headline. It was definitely worth the headline. Nick, it's been so wonderful speaking with you, and thank you very much for your candor. And it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Nick's book, co-written with Sean O'Hagan, is called Faith, Love, and Carnage. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.